Rehabilitation Hospital treats more than 5,000 wild animals each year with the goal of returning them to their native habitat. The Lindsay Wildlife Museum is in Walnut Creek. To learn more, visit wildlife-museum.org. This public service announcement Breaking is brought to you that, by your friends do as much as you want. Radio. Well, I don't have that much spoken word. I have, the, I have that record and I have the... Hey, folks. You got the Flat Black Plastic Show on Mutiny Radio.fm. Here's some Uncle Bill. The president, with his toadies and familiars, is now 500 feet down in solid rock with enough fine foods, wines, liquors, cash, coke, and heroin to last 100 years, and the longevity drugs to enjoy, <laughs> held off the market in the interest of national security. <laughs> the president appears on national TV with his well-cut suit hanging loose on his skinny frame to pipe out an adolescent treble alternately pompous and cracking. We categorically deny that there are any crack, so-called fountain of youth drugs, procedures, or treatments that are being held back from the American people crack. He flashes a boyish smile and runs a comb through his unruly abundant hair. <laughs> And I categorically dismiss as without foundation rumors that I myself, the First Lady, my fag son, <laughs> my colleagues in the cabinet are sustaining ourselves on state-of-the-art vampiric technology drawing off from the American pimples, <clears throat> crack giggle, so-called energy units. His hair stands up and crackles, and he gives the American people a finger. I got mine, fuck you, every crumb for himself. <laughs> it is Colonel Bradfield's job to investigate the practical potentials of ESP, sorcery, witchcraft, the lot. He doesn't give a shit for natural laws or what is and isn't possible. All he cares about are results. Bring me the ones that work. What'd you bring this old beast in here for? A withered old man dressed only in a loincloth, stiff with yellow piss stains. Stinking like a snake cave in spring, sits down in a leather armchair. Fumigating the chair will be inadequate, the colonel decides. <clears throat> He's a natural chief. He can throw an operative curse. I don't doubt it. He can kill by proximity. <laughs> He's got a good track record, chief. Sure, sure. And 80 years in the making. So how did he get that way? To be a magician, you gotta be inhuman in some way. Easiest is to eat your own shit and eat it steady. <laughs> eat it in and shit it out and eat it in again. It gets eviler and dirtier, a stink nobody can smell and live. But who am I to be critical? <clears throat> Trouble is, it just isn't practical. 
but chief, no trace, no way it could be traced to us. The hell there isn't. You think the Ivans aren't into this shit up to the ass? You can dig and make up the evidence. We all do it. No way to trace it. Big deal. 80 shit-eating years to turn out one old human centipede can throw a curse if you hold him steady on target. I can train an agent in hours with untraceable poisons and toxins, electronic devices to produce irrhythmical heartbeats. He died in his sleep, dreaming about a beautiful, deadly woman, and all he wanted to do was die in her arms. See what I mean? We don't need it. But chief, we can't just throw away a thing like this. Indeed, where can we throw it? It's radioactive. Get it out of here for starters and take the chair out with it. <clears throat> Political program, every man of God. And how can this be accomplished? Well, to put it country simple, by doing your job and doing it well. Because there are many gods. A god, god of whores and thieves and pushers. A god of fevers and plagues who rides on a whispering south wind. A god of the long chance. The horse that comes from last to win in the stretch. The punch-drunk fighter who comes off the floor to win by a knockout. A god of anti-heroes and outrage. The ship's captain who put on women's clothes and rushed into the first lifeboat. The pilot who bailed out of a burning plane, leaving his passengers to crash. A god of future space travelers who are ready to leave the whole human context behind and take a step into the unknown. Every man a god, that is, if he can qualify. You can't be a god of anything unless you can do it. The President of the United States. If your name is Sam Rayburn, you lift your gavel and rap for order as a joint session of senators and representatives, many of them bitter foes of the man on the rostrum, cheer him madly because like most Americans, they are angry, frightened, and confused. And he is the President of the United States. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. If you were in Manila that night or in Singapore or London, you know the terror of that sound. You know it can never be imitated. 
It is the shimmering wail of a hundred sirens bouncing off the echo chambers, which are a bombed city's dead buildings and deserted docks. If you were on Bataan that night, or the Burma Road three months later, or Guadalcanal a year later, you know that when a howitzer shell explodes, the jungle screams back. From Rayburn's gavel to the warning signal of the D-Day Armada. Our glossary of war words reached round the globe and back again. Corregidor in Sevastopol, Strobing and Wainwright and HMS Prince of Wales. Sidi Barani in the Irrawaddy, Archangel and Bazerta in the Makassar Straits. Flak Happy, Radar, Spitfire, the Bazooka and the Molotov Cocktail. Schweinfurt, Ploeste, Dieppe, Ascension, the Kasserine Pass and Hill 609. M1, JU-88, APO-885, OSS, and Jig-Easy Sugar Queen. The Pripet Marshes, the Lido Road, the Slot, the Hump, the Repel Depots, the Piccadilly Commandos, and a beach called Anzio. The Memphis Belle, Geronimo, Wild Bull, the Fighting Lady, and the Ceremonious Peeling of Big Ben. The discordant bong of our little Liberty Bell on D-Day. This is Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force. And a man from Kansas with a message half the world had prayed for. General Dwight D. Eisenhower. People of Western Europe. A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe, made in conjunction with our great Russian allies. And the liberation, like the message that signaled it, came in many tongues. The French of Charles de Gaulle. La bataille suprême est engagée. Après tant de combats, de fureur, de douleur, voici venu le choc décisif. And a Polish foreign minister in exile. Żołnierze, lotnicy, marynarze Polacy. Wkraczamy w decydującą fazę generalnej rozgrywki i porachunku z Niemcami. Those who were there say King Hawken wept as he spoke to Norway. Landsmen, some days eaten store, touchy plan. Some hatal sickte for frequering of Europa's unattractive folk. And there were messages from the Dutch, the Danes, the Luxembourgers, and the Belgians. Mes chers compatriotes, les opérations préliminaires pour la libération de l'Europe ont commencé. I call upon all who love freedom to stand with us now. Together, we shall achieve victory. I feel nothing for you. I hold myself down. Keep to yourself. You shouldn't touch me. My skin peels off my bones. I'll give you a gift. Take the skin from my stomach and stretch it across your face. Look in the mirror. I see myself through your eyes. My body's on the ground behind you. You use it to amuse yourself. When you kick it around the room, you feel the impact of your boot in your stomach. Cry for me. Blame me for the fact you no longer recognize yourself. Lying here, I want the air in this room to consume me, to pull my body in behind itself while you stare down at me, uncertain if you've lost yourself in me. You're running your hands along the leather surface of your skin. The sound this makes changes pitch according to the area of your body you touch. 
Your thighs and your groin generate a low hum. The sound of my corpse releasing dead air when you kick me. Your face generates a continuous high-pitched squeal. The sound I make when you burn me. I take you over. You forget yourself in my body. When you chew a piece of skin from your finger, you remember my body in your mouth. My bones cracking between your teeth. I love you. When you lick your hand, your sweat tastes like my blood. Conceal yourself. Close yourself off. Pull back into my skin. I'm inside you. The place on the floor where my body decayed left a stain on your memory. That's the signature of my love for you. You can't forget me without losing yourself. I'll never die. Do you want the family man or do you want the swinging man? You choose. Family man. You get the family man. Family man. Family man. Family man. With your glances my way, taking no chances on the new day. Family man. Family man with your life all planned. Your little sandcastle built, smiling through your guilt. Family man. Here I come. Here I come, family man. I come to infect. I come to rape your woman. I come to take your children into the street. I come for you, family man. Family man, with your Christmas lights already up. You're such a man when you're putting up your Christmas lights. First on the block, family man. Family man, I want to crucify you on your front door with nails from your well-stocked garage. Family man, family man, family man, Saint Dad, Father on fire. I've come to incinerate you. I've come home. This is the phone company, and we've been getting a lot of complaints about you lately. I don't know what's going on over there, but this has got to stop. I need this job. Okay, bye-bye. Okay. Limousine. Uh, yes, I'm calling about your limousine hostess job. Okay, what is your name? My name is Geraldine. Geraldine? Yes. How old are you, dear? I'm 26. Right, and you're good looking. I'm very, very, very good looking. Good, that's important. Yes. And you're friendly. Do you speak any other languages? A little French. Pouvez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir? You know what that means, I bet, huh? Um, <laughs> um what does the job entail? Uh, Geraldine, um, you would be going out with business people from Japan and Germany, dignitaries. Um, oh take them out for dinner or dancing or to see the sights of L.A. And that's $25 an hour. Oh, great. You know, because, you know, I really like people. I'm a people person. And I'm also these, like, guys I'll be working with. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, that works out, too, because, you know, I can relate to them on both levels because when I was a guy, you know, I, I would do guy things. But now that I'm a woman, I can do womanly things, and I think I'm full-rounded in that respect, so I'll give them the best of everything they need. Are you white on white or black on black? What are you? Am I black? No, I'm, I'm, I'm biracial. 
Are you Afri African American? I'm African American, Castilian, Puerto Rican, oh, yeah. German, <laughs> and a little French because you know I speak French, voulez-vous? Right. Right, right. Boy, this is a great gig. I can't believe I'm glad I called you, Mr. Go because this is perfect for me. <laughs> Let's see if you're perfect for us. Give me a phone number. Okay, I'm at 213-6649-53. Okay, we're sending up appointments for next week. Okay. We'll give you a call back and let you know what time and... Uh, okay. Right, well, we will meet you. Uh-huh. And if they want to fuck me, you know, we can fuck too. Because, you know, I can take it and I can give it. It depends, you know. It's no problem. Up, down, around, doggy style, snoop doggy, doggy style. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I can do anything. And do you do drugs? Do I do drugs? I mean, you know, just sleeping pills sometimes. I'm a little giddy because I took a little last night. All right, let me give you a call back um, on Monday and let you know when the appointments are. And okay. Come down and see us. Okay, well, you know, I'll keep it swinging until then. All right. And it's hanging low and ready to go, okay? All right. I mean, I got everything, the whole package. Interesting, <laughs> we'll meet with you. Okay. Okay, pal. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> The perfection and introduction of the self-starter probably did more to revolutionize the automobile industry than any other single development. For with a self-starter, the convenience of personal transportation in a push. private car was no longer dependent upon a strong cranking arm. Other automotive cars developments followed rapidly. Inseparable part of Tubeless selling new cars. More brakes, than 90% of new car buyers trade in a used car, which the dealer virtually buys for cash. Not until this first trade-in is sold, and possibly not until another used car is traded in against it, does the dealer make a set of profits. Didn't used cars, at a therefore, speed. represent the profit factor Too many of the dealership. Cars kept on Consequently, nothing is more important than the appraisal. Methods, the appraisal is of great importance to the prospect, the too. Were hardly Through the years, he has and been conditioned to question this particular part Tendering the allowance price on the car to be traded is the most critical point in the negotiation of a sale. It carries a moment of fear for all concerned. That is the prospect of this recorded album, authored by Richard Monroe, an international expert on automotive selling. The salesman is afraid he can't match the previous offer, and that the deal won't suit his sales manager. The sales manager is afraid the salesman will unwisely over-allow, as well as fearing his authorized over-allowance is not enough. There is really little need for the salesman or sales manager in the business of selling cars. Unless the manager is out to chisel the prospect, or unless you, the sales car salesman, needs more than anything kind of else, profit -making is a suit of armor. Deal above and armor to protect himself levels. from the prospective wheel and dealum type of operation at doesn't different make times and business. by different people. And it's usually automobile salesmen have been described as hard workers, extroverts, drifters, today with a ramblers, colors of cutting, and the ease with which fastback can obtain reasonable information. They have also been described as being sincere, conscientious, sympathetic, a simple form, lazy, providing your intentions are honorable. Defenders of our economic possible opportunity, the appraiser or sales manager should. There emerges the only one valued. verifiable truth. The allowance price should be reasonable. salesmen are subject to more criticism to bring than the car any into other salesman. Quick resale. Why? The valuation is Two always the more accurate easy if the appraiser has seen the car personal. mobility and their singleness of in order to succeed in terms of the should product, have 100% confidence in the appraisal figure beyond the prospect. Go into any department store and you'll find a small army of salespeople Only with a multitude of different can you sell the allowance to figure to the prospect. Not so with the automobile Furthermore, to be effective, he has a good only one should be instantly available and he must take a trade in. Reason. And unlike his counterpart in the department store, he has no way to find advertised his idea of the trade-in value and your offer. 
If the appraisal is collected on a scientific basis, he stands in the showroom awaiting the onslaught and bargain hunters, shoppers, or cutters, rebacks, and occasionally a genuine prospect. No wonder he feels the need for a suit on the spot sales possibility. How then does an intelligent car salesman meet and triumph over such collective misconception? It proves you are difficult as it may be. If he is determined to succeed, he dons a pair of rose-colored glasses through which he can view his prospects in their proper perspective. You need have no fear of any kind. Prospects respond best to the salesman who has that indescribable quality, sincerity, and confidence. He doesn't Quite have a lot to be of money overly involved in the purchase of a new car and the trade in value of your prospect's present car is He not only knows how to make a good sales presentation, but he likes him like to do crook. He realizes that contrary to some opinion, 70% of, of all worth. car sales are made within a few miles of the dealership. Are not out to so beat he prepares the dealer. a good prospect are people list with average and keeps it up to date. He calls for appointments. The variations of the annoyance, but regularly enough to demonstrate entry in your dealership. And when he does get a prospect into the showroom, so here's only a word after of he has sold his personality, his car, and his dealership, of the many and the service that awaits the customer. On model this, he mentioned the price. The next. And they might if he follows this line of procedure in selling and this attitude actually his relations with prospective buyers in trade is governed by the physical space and financial ability to buy them. Your company may be further limited by its reconditioning facilities. For example, if you're pressing the sale of a special or last year's model, your dealer might over-allow to get things rolling. He also might be generous in obtaining a used car he thinks particularly resaleable, or to encourage a deal with a large fleet owner. Finally, you could already have six of one model on the lot now, so the sales manager calls a halt. Work with the dealership, and you'll find in nine cases out of ten, they'll work with you. Appraisals and trade-ins. Regardless of how you may feel personally about a company appraisal, don't sell it short to your prospect. Have respect for your appraiser. Remember. Good evening. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon and good morning to those of you who just got up. In this first annual message to all of you Batoans, you're going to discover something wonderful. People just like you really have a ball. We're recording live tonight from the Bahama Hotel here in Fort Lickerdale, Florida. Long drinks and short songs are the rule here in this sunny, fun-filled haven for happy hoochers. And here we go with our own Betoa International Anthem. club members tonight, friends, just to get their views on a myriad of different subjects, the most important of which is a casual booze every three or four minutes. <laughs> Claude, you might put one in a glass while you're waiting. Now, I'll tell you who I'd like to talk to. Emma. Ooh. Emma, tell me, darling, where are you from? I never did ask you that, but you're a positive thinker because you've been drinking that booze pretty good tonight. Miami Shores. Now, will you answer me this, Emma? How did you first meet your husband? Did, 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 uh, 
Well, how did you meet? Huh? I was going to say, did a bar or, or you know, did a cocktail party or anything like that? Emma, quit applauding yourself here. Now in a hardware store, selling some black tape. What was he doing in the hardware store? I see. And what were you doing in the hardware store? Well, I just wanted to see him. I want to nail him. <laughs> oh, have enough of poor working man. Emma, I want to ask you something out there while we still have a certain amount of uh, decorum here. What is your candid... Uh, uh, opinion of uh, people who go out and drink like this, you know, it's normal. Oh, I think it's just wonderful. You have a grand time. I love it. <laughs> Are we back in the hardware store again? <laughs> Emma, thank you so much, and I'm glad that you're a positive thinker, and I'm glad you like to drink, and I think she's been a good gal, so what do you say we give her a nice time? I've got this couple up here. Would you tell me your name, dear heart? Penelope Jones. <laughs> Penelope Jones. Penelope, it's great to have you here, dear heart. It's great having been had here. Great having been had. Without a doubt, Penelope is a member of the club. I guess. Penelope, what are your casual views as to drinking, honey? Booze is the only answer. You sweet thing. Do you have any pets or anything like that? Two poodles. You have two poodles? Yes. And a boxer. A that boxer? was bred with a German shepherd. Give him a little three and one on the rocks, will you? chimpanzee, and, um, oh, three cats. Where do you keep the cats? In the cat house. <laughs> oh, if I would have said it, it would have been dirty, wouldn't it? Somebody else can say it, it's a riot. <laughs> Penelope, let's say hello to the little lady on your right there in the striped uh, blouse. What's her name? Muriel. Hi, Muriel. Where Hi. are you from, honey? New York. You're a New Yorker? Mm-hmm. You've been out with this man before? Yes. Has he always been a perfect gentleman? All the time. Dull, isn't it? <laughs> I try and try, but I can't seem to pry my mind from the gutter. Gutter brain pushing filthy thoughts. 
dirty hands working digging nails. Let your fingers do the walking, let your fingers do the walking, let your fingers do the walking, let your fingers do the walking. I saw your head nodding from side to side. You say you stuck around for just one last ride. Well, you'll surely go just as sure as you came. What's your name? What's your name? What's your name? What's your name? Let your fingers do the walking, let your fingers do the walking, let your fingers do the walk, let your fingers do the walking. You spent so much time telling me about yourself and your kind. There's so many of you now, and I want to know, how does your army grow, and so on, man, and so on, man, so go on, man, so go on, man, well, so long, man. Let your fingers do the walking, let your fingers do the walking, let your fingers do the walking, let your fingers do the walking. Hey now, hey now, I got a halo above my head and a gun in my hand. I can do no wrong, no wrong, man. Time stands still and takes a step aside. My credit is good anywhere, anytime. All the girls know my name, but there's none by my side. I'm a man among man, walking tall with a plan. You can send it around the world, you can hold it in your hand, you can bring it on home. I'm Armageddon man. It's written on the wall for a good time call. Me, won't you come by? Won't you give me a try? I'm easy to read. And I'm willing to teach you everything you want to know. Don't come knocking on my door. It's open. Just walk in like you own the place. Hang your hat. Put your feet up. I got time and I know how to use it. How much time do you have? Do you know? How much do you need to get the job done? You know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Of course you do. That's why you came here in the first place. Let your fingers do the walking, let your fingers do the walking, let your fingers do the walking, let your fingers do the walking. How can I forgive? How can I let live? How can I forgive? How can I let live? How are you gonna make me forgive? How are you gonna make me let live? Let your fingers do the walking, let your fingers do the walking, let your fingers do the walking, let your fingers do the walking. You're tuned in to MutinyRadio.fm. This is the Flat Black Plastic Show. It's talk radio today, but only talk that's coming from Flat Black Plastic. Enjoy. The story of the lion on the path. Once upon a time, there was a man and his wife, and they were working together in their fields. And the wife, she turned to her husband and said, Please, she said, I want to go and see my mother. And he said, what? Again? Yes, she said, it's very important. All right, he said, you can go. But when you go, don't you take the big path that goes down the valley. There are lions there. You take the little path that goes up over the hills that all the people take. So she said she would. Then she picked up her child, slung him onto her back, put her pot on top of her head, and off she went. Well... She hadn't been gone more than, oh, a very short while, when he said to himself, I do believe my wife is on the wrong path. Sure of it. So he threw down his hoe, went off to his hut, picked up his little instrument of music, his mbira, you know, the, the little one he plays between his hands, and off he went down the path. Now, when he got to the place where the two paths divided, there, on the wrong path, were the footprints of his wife. And he said to himself, just like my wife, 
on he went as quickly as he could down the valley, round behind some trees, and there, standing stuck still in the middle of the path, there was his wife, and beyond her, about to spring, was a lion. What could he do? What could he do? Except to play his instrument of music. So quickly he began to play I will play my notes, I will play my notes. These notes of mine of Niamondo, I will play them to the chief. Thus and thus I'll entertain him, entertain him with my notes. And the lion, hearing this most magnificent music, quite forgot about his dinner and began to dance. Then the man quickly pulled his wife round behind him and went on playing now, of course, the man wanted to get away from the lion. But do you know what happened? Every time he took a step back, the lion couldn't hear the music and took a step forward. Now, this went on for a very long time, and the man was getting more and more tired. And just when he felt he was altogether exhausted and he couldn't go on playing any longer, a little voice beside him said, and he looked down, and there was, what do you think? A rabbit. And rabbit said, Psh, hand it down to me. And without stopping playing for a moment, the man handed his instrument down to rabbit, and he put up his paws, and he went on playing. And the rabbit, he said to the man and his wife, off you go. So quickly they went off together along the path back towards their home. And Rabbit watched them go until they were safely out of sight and then he looked for a place to escape. And there, away on one side, he saw a hole in the ground and he said to himself, that'll do. So quickly he threw down the instrument and bolted down the hole. Well, of course. The moment the magical music stopped, Lion woke up, and all he could see was a rabbit disappearing down a hole. And he said to himself, Bless me, he said. I could have been sure that that was a man playing. And that was the end of that story. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this, and nothing more. Ah, uh, distinctly I remember 
It was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow. Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. The silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more." Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore, but the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce for sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, Long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, 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 the stillness but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door perched upon the bust of palace dust above my chamber door perched and sat and nothing more then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore though thy crest be shorn and shaven thou i said art sure no craven Ghastly, grim, and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore, tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marvelled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore, for we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast, upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such name as nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on that placid bust, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing further than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered. I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before, on the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, caught from some unhappy master whose unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hopes that melancholy burden bore of never, never more. But the raven still beguiling all my sad soul into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door, 
Then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease, reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er she shall press. Ah, nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer swung by seraphim, whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee respite, respite and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is the, is the balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still of bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, quoth the raven, Nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest of the night's Plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart, and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. The raven never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door, and his eyes of all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor, and my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted. Nevermore. How many of you have your Bibles? All right. Please turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Genesis 1, 27 is a good place for us to begin this morning. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Look at verse 27 again, Genesis 1, 27. So God created man. 
In his own image and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And you can write down alongside of that verse, Matthew 19, 4. For our Lord quoted this verse in the New Testament. Oftentimes I hear people say, well, I believe the New Testament, but I don't believe the Old. That's a lot of tummy rot. You take all of the Old Testament references out of the New Testament, you're going to have a lot of holes in the New Testament. So God created man. We're not talking about monkeys here. We're not talking about cavemen. We're talking about human beings. We are not animals. We are human beings. I think by now you know that we do not believe in the devilish theory of evolution, better called devolution. Whether it's organic evolution, theistic evolution, or any other kind of evolution, it's out as far as a child of God is concerned. It's a lie from the devil. Child of God is concerned. It's a lie from the devil. So God created man in his image, in the image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now the tragedy of the day is that we are teaching our young people that we come from monkeys and cavemen. And then they grow up and they start living like monkeys and cavemen and we call them juvenile delinquents. Well, whatever you sow, you're going to reap. We read about this first couple in verse 28, and God blessed them. Now this is the first couple on the face of the earth and we read that God blessed them. And this is what our God has been trying to do for couples down through the ages. God wants to bless us. God wants to bless you in your courtship. God wants to bless you in your engagement. God wants to bless you in your marriage. And God bless them. And as God blessed this first married couple, God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish, or fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now here goes. Of course, is talking about the sex relationship. Now those... Years ago, I asked a great chef for whom I worked, what is cooking and what is the function of a cook? He looked down at me and said, well, boy, a cook is a person, man or woman, who takes the fowl from the air, the fish from the waters, vegetables from the land, and animals that walk on earth, and with his skill and art, transforms the raw products to edible food. He serves to sustain life in men, woman, and child. He has the sacred duty, through his effort and art, to maintain the healthy body that God has given us to house our soul. His philosophical observation on cooking still lingers on in me. I would like to present it to you to show you what admiration and love these men put in his cooking chores. A man who cooks for king and beggars with the same love as you should cook for your family and friends. Nature's way of indicating what she requires men to eat is through the appetite. One of the strongest human appetite is the liking of meats. It is one of the most important parts in our menu. Nearly every one of us loves the rich flavor of meat. After a course of flavorful and well-cooked meat, we have the feeling of being well-fed and satisfied. 
and our physical and mental ego is lifted sky high. The tantalizing flavor of meat is due to a substance known as extractives, which have relatively little food value in themselves, but act as a powerful stimulant towards our gastric juices and thereby are an aid to our digestion. Meat also gives the body a sense of physical well-being as obtained from no other food. As food, it is invaluable. From the standpoint of nutrition, it supplies protein for building and rebuilding body tissue, fats for producing heat energy, and vitamins, which are essential in the maintenance of good health and building up resistance to sickness. And the building of body tissue, meat My dear, last night that I appeared in Tonka City, the house was so crowded, they couldn't applaud that way. They had to applaud this way. Oh, how wonderful. Nothing really. In Keokuk one night, they were so jammed in they couldn't laugh. Ha, ha, ha. They had to laugh. Ho, ho, ho. He was the braggart and a teller of tall tales. He made prevarication an art. He lied about golf. For instance, I had places playing in the Thousand Islands many years ago. I used to be in the dressing business up there. In the early days in the Thousand Islands, we used to tee off on one island and drive to the other. How far is it from one island to the other? Oh, about a mile. Really? You could drive a mile? We used to putt a quarter of a mile. Of course, we had to have the wind behind us. He lied about ping pong. Do I play ping pong? Oh, do I play ping I didn't get you the first time. I was one-time champion of the Tri-State League and the Lesser Antilles. Didn't know one card from the other when I started, but I stayed up at night marked him with a pin. <laughs> he told tall tales about his prowess at croquet. Professor, uh, do you croquet? Uh, no, I do not. I used to do a little tatting in the trains occasionally. Oh, no, 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 Professor. Croquet, croquet, you know. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I helped write the game. No. Oh, toured the world giving lessons and also lecturing. You say? Yeah. But of course, I haven't had a bat in my hand for more than a year. <laughs> what lazy lout left these wires all over the lawn? He added new dimensions to the art of bragging. The old Senate days, I used to direct Fatty Arbuckle, Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, and the rest of them. Can't get the celluloid out of my blood. Uh, I was born in Philadelphia, but raised in Waxahachie, Texas. I uh, shot a man's nose off down there many years ago. Shot a man's nose off? Ah, uh, a uh, man had a rather prominent proboscis, after the fashion of uh, all eminent men. Stood on the corner, pulled out a shooting iron, says, I'm going to shoot that man's nose off. Shot it off as clean as you could cut it with a buzzsaw. You, you know my gardener? Uh, I knew his father. He used to work for me at my silver, gold, and platinum mine up at Cohen's Gulch. Here is his classic description of his encounter with Indians to a skeptical audience. My last encounter with the Redskins was over 35 years ago. I was a mere stripling. Is that so? Uh, I whipped out my revolver. Revolvers weren't invented 35 years ago. To, uh, uh, I know that. But the Indians didn't know it. 
Doesn't matter. I threw it away. Oh, how exciting. Please don't interrupt. I just won the rapids. Had my canoe under one arm and a rocky mountain goat under the other. How could you swim without the use of your arms? Uh, uh, in those days, I had, uh, I had very strong legs. Uh, excuse me. Very strong limbs. You must have been full of fire in your youth. I had to carry fire insurance until I was over 40. As I arrived in the riverbank, I was encountered by the entire tribe of the Shug Indians. The most ferocious. Have you ever been to the Shug country? No, I haven't. Oh, that's fine. I unsheathed my bowie knife and cut a path through this wall of human flesh, dragging my canoe behind me. But uh, what happened to the goat? He was very good with mustard. Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied. Perhaps almost as folk might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. It was near the end of October, business was better. The war scare was over. More men were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crosley service estimated that 32 million people were listening in on radios. For the next 24 hours, not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern states, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. Maximum temperature 66, minimum 48. This weather report comes to you from the Government Weather Bureau. We take you now to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. 
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. With a touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Campancita. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel situated in downtown New York. Hey, folks, you're listening to Flat Black Plastic on MutinyRadio.fm. This is Dave Alvin, and he doesn't sweat. I don't sweat. He comes home each night and pours a drink and rests his head in his hand and watches TV. He's tired. He's led a hard life. A child of the Depression, a young man of the World War, an old man of work. He works hard. He sweats. He's done it all his life. He doesn't like me. I don't sweat. He seems to understand why I don't sweat. He won't tell me. I don't understand. I've tried to sweat. I've worked in a factory, read books, traveled, jacked off, made love, but still no sweat. He's seen everything, he tells me. He says everything is bullshit. He can say it. He sweats. He can say anything. He sweats. I can't say nothing. I don't sweat. Heartbeats in Westward. Heartbeats of tiny little mini skirts, but not too tiny, oozing with sex, kind of. I know, because I was there. I can tell you the truth, the truth of long, hot summer nights spent walking up and down Broxton, looking for action, hanging out in front of Taco Bell. My girlfriend dumped a Coca-Cola over my head because she got mad. The whole street applauded. I felt angry. I heard heartbeats in Westwood. Every weekend, walking through the patio, getting to know the vendors. I like this guy who sold crystal necklaces. I told him I was 16, but I was only 14. He said he was 19. He was so old. We went out once. He said I was inexperienced. I felt angry. I heard heartbeats in Westwood. One night in front of the Bruin Theater, a guy drove up in a silver Corvette. He said something to me. I went over and looked in the car. He didn't have any pants on. He wanted me to touch his heartbeats in Westwood. Pounding the pavement, the mean streets beckoning with promises of so much but only delivering Jews for Jesus and Harry Krishna dancing for a Bank of America. 
and always the music, 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 the music. In June of 1925, Dayton, Tennessee, nestled in the foothills of the Cumberlands, was a sleepy, obscure little town of 5,000. But by mid-July, it was a gaudy midway of lemonade stands, souvenir hawkers, telegraph-sending stations, and it had swollen to three times its normal size. It all revolved about a new state law, which outlawed the teaching of evolution. Be it enacted by the General Assembly of the state of Tennessee that it shall be unlawful to teach any theory that denies the story of the divine creation of man and to teach instead that man has descended from a lower order of animals. Scopes himself was quite secondary to the trial. A rather personable young schoolteacher, he purposely created the issue by lecturing to his class on evolution. The stage was set. Scopes was arrested, indicted, and brought to trial. Then to Dayton came the two real protagonists. To prosecute, elder statesman, three-time presidential candidate, William Jennings Bryan. I am here to protect the word of God from the greatest atheist and agnostic in the United States. For the defense, the highly successful criminal lawyer, Clarence Darrow. If today you can take a thing like evolution and make it a crime to teach in the public schools, then at the next session you may ban books and newspapers. Soon you may set Catholic against Protestant, and then Protestant against Protestant. Bryan believed it was strictly a battle between religion and atheism. Darrow insisted it was a fight between a literal translation of the Bible and a common sense one. There were many supporters from all faiths on both sides. The climax occurred when the defense called Bryan himself to be a witness. Now, Mr. Bryan, let me ask you if you take the Bible literally. For example, do you really believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale? Yes, I believe that. But it was a fish, not a whale. Was this a, a mine run of fish or made specially for the purpose? I am not prepared to say. Well, do you think that the Lord purposefully made a fish big enough to swallow Jonah? I do. Well, one miracle is just as easy to believe as another. A God who can make a whale can make a man and make both do what he pleases. The tiny courtroom, bursting with the press and spectators, sweltered in the impartial heat. And finally the judge moved the trial out on the shaded lawn, where Brian and Darrow, in shirt sleeves and galluses, continued their duel. Uh, Mr. Brian, do you believe literally the story of Eve? I do. And the story of the temptation of Eve by the serpent? Yes. And that God made the serpent crawl on his belly for eternity because of his participation in the temptation? That is my belief. And how, sir, do you suppose that the snake got along before that? Your Honor, may I say that the only reason Mr. Darrow has in being here is to slur at the Bible. 
I want the world to know that this man, who does not believe in a god, is trying to use a court in Tennessee... I object to that, Your Honor. ...to slur at the Bible. I object to your statement. I'm examining you on your fool ideas that no intelligent Christian on earth believes. Court is adjourned. Scopes was found guilty and fined $100, which the Baltimore Sun paid. It was a humiliating final hour for the great commoner. In less than a week, he died. Dempsey had fought them all. Willard, Furpo, Carpentier. Now in the ring of the sesquicentennial stadium in Philadelphia, Father Time and a master boxer named Tunney had caught up with the perfect fighting machine which was William Harrison Dempsey. As he stood there in the warm rain, his face battered, swollen, and purple, he met fame halfway and for the first time gave his followers something to love him for. Honey, I guess I just forgot to duck. A year later, Dempsey crawled into the ring for the return match with the new champion. It was Dempsey's last fight, Tex Records' biggest gate, and a million-dollar purse for Tunney. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the radio audience. This is Graham McNamee speaking from NBC. Most people remember Graham McNamee's description of that famous seventh Dempsey's round. coming out there, leading up. He comes into Tunney with both hands. Uh-oh, doesn't do any depth. As they come out of the clinch, Tunney's right catches Dempsey on the face. Then Tunney, Tunney shoots a hard left to Dempsey. Gene follows that up with more left to Jack's jaw. And Dempsey, Dempsey comes back with a hard right to Tunney's face. Gene felt that. Gene felt that, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, Dempsey comes on through with a terrific right. He's got Tunney against the ropes. There's another right landing on the champion's jaw. A barrage of left and right. And Tunney is down. Tunney's down. Dempsey's on, on the other side of him. The referee has not yet begun to count. He has not. Nine, five, six, seven. Dempsey's waiting for him. Eight. Tunney's, Tunney's up. Tunney's up on nine. The fight's continuing. Tunney's back in the way. He's backpedaling. He looks a little groggy. Dempsey's coming in, trying to get to him, but he's backpedaling. He tries a long left. It doesn't Dempsey, land. with victory only seconds away, neglected to go to a neutral corner. The referee, in delaying the count, gave Tunney four revitalizing seconds. Tunney managed to stay on his feet, wore his panting pursuer to a frazzle, outboxed him, and at the final bell remained the heavyweight champion of the world. Death camp. Whole alphabets of bones, broken bodies, holes that were mouths, skulls that were faces, all features broken books of stifled screams, white bone curses, Alphabets broken and cursing, landscape a heap of bones and scrapings, metallic scratched stone, glass and bones and teeth, the broken screams and holes that were eyes, that were lives, that were breath, the cursed earth howls with mouths that once with soft lips kissed. High blood pressure. So far this week, I spent four and one-half hours looking at the smeared walls and heavy brown faces of County General hustling the first pap smear for a 19-year-old rape victim, my best friend. I used up half a tank of low lead driving to East Los Angeles to pick up my six-year-old nephew, so now there are five people here on these two couches and two beds in this one room overlooking Washington Boulevard. 
and with five folks eating, the cornmeal canister is half empty and ain't no hot dogs left. So far this week, somebody broke the metal hinges off the mailbox door and stepped with my disability check. My younger brother came in drunk five times and told me he was gonna roll a punk or beat the shit out of a Mexican. And while I can usually talk him out of snatching purses or knocking over liquor stores about fighting, he told me, don't you worry none about me. I never get into anything I can't handle. That's why I ain't got no scars on my face. And I ain't gonna do no time behind no punks. The man don't care about faggots and Mexicans. They's free game in this neighborhood. So when I asked my calm-faced doctor what I got to do to get well so I can work, buy groceries, and move, he said, stress. Eliminate stress from your life and you'll be fine. And just today I decided I won't go outside during the day anymore because my best partner got snatched and pushed to her knees in broad daylight. Some funky nigga tipped off with $97 of my uncashed money and my brother ain't got but two joints left. Fired up, man, I told him. What that doctor want me to do? Quit smoking, eat vegetables and lean beef, take walks in the afternoon, relax? Shit, brother man, pass me the joint. I think I'm gonna be healing for a good while. This is the phone company, and we've been, we've been getting, getting a lot. Yeah, I, I want to talk to somebody. Um, look, I'm 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 in an abusive marriage. My wife is my wife is crazy. She's she's been abusing the hell out of me for the last couple of years, and I can't take this anymore. I got to talk to somebody before before this shit blows up. Okay, well, let me tell you what we are. We are. You have a couple of options here. Yeah. We are a private counseling center. And people coming here are here for a purpose, for issues that they need to work through. Um, and they want to come to see one of our counselors, and they come once a week. Right. And that's where problems that you may be having, such as this one that you're having, those issues can be worked through. And maybe if your wife is willing to come also, we can put you on a weekly program. You know, I don't think she's willing to do anything. She's bugging. She's fucking going crazy, and I can't take this anymore. I mean, last night we was at Red Lobster. Mm-hmm. I, I ordered a salad. She didn't like the salad, so she takes the fucking salad, throws it in my face, hits me over the head with the salad bowl and then she takes the knife and she she stabs me in my fucking shoulder. I can't take this anymore. She's going to okill me here. Um, You know, and I love her. Okay. Uh, This is a very serious issue and I can hear that you are just at the end of your rope. Oh, oh shit. She's coming in. She's coming in. Um, Who are you on the phone with? uh, This is my brother. Oh, is that Michael? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Hold on, please. What's going on, Mike? Hello? Michael? Hello? You're not on the phone with Michael. Who is this? Is this some motherfucking bitch motherfucker? No, 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 You don't put them on pizzas, but wear them between your teeth. And chew, chew, chew. Climbing clouds, exuberant, beatitude, melting and rising like the Red Sea or Jello across the Bronson Caves, past wolves and daffodils, and poster-tall images of Roger McGuinn, who, rick in hand, vicious, spacey, muttering as he was when he was swinging like 65. I met Alice in my wonderland. She looked a whole lot like Leslie Caron and Gigi, sung me hatred and despair between sips of Dr. Brown's cream soda, cream soda and celery soda. What the fuck is celery soda? It's all heaven to me. Eyes dilute and noisy brain cells dying one by one by one by one. Will I end up a celery stick or a carrot in children's hospital? Or maybe subtly a human null, not exactly catching every word that floats between the gray matter. It matters not. Have I ever? What matters? The word is, the word is, the word is, is beatitude.
Wish I had some Elvis Presley records to listen to when I'm feeling late 50s. The mood is turquoise and pink, like being in a sparkling floor like a kitchen or a backyard bomb shelter. My brain feels free-formed between prosperity and depression. Wanna watch I Love Lucy reruns, buy a pair of loafers, drive a push-button shift. After the revolution, excerpts from an endless poem. After the revolution, everything will be far out, okay, USDA grade A, sweet smelling, and unreal. After the revolution, sparrows will sing all the time, the azaleas will always be in bloom, and we will leap from star to star. After the revolution, I will at wish be able to slip into fancy shoes and dancing laugh away my blues. After the revolution, every day will be Christmas and we'll all dress in our fine Mao jackets to visit our celestial friends. After the revolution, contradiction will not be regarded as such. Everything will be swinging between itself and its opposite, constantly transforming into its own negation and back again. After the revolution, there'll be no after the revolution, because the revolution will be happening all the time. And since there'll be no need for memory and oppression, videotape will be recycled back into coal and buried deep in the clean earth. There will be no books after the revolution. Everybody will already know everything, and in any case, they'll be too busy chanting the complete works of William Blake, which will come to them immediate through inspiration. Kit Smart will be our state poet after the revolution. He will have returned from his stay in Beulah, where he will have been successful in educating Baraka out of the evil of his anti-Semitism. After the revolution, Toni Morrison will read the news, and when she feels like it, she'll write it too. Jack Hirschman will do the weather. He knows which way the wind blows. After the revolution, I'll finish my poem about Aretha. After the revolution, the aged will once again, respected, rock gently on lawn swings in the summer, evenings of their lives, and may your life be long will be a blessing, not a curse. After the revolution, the rich will live no longer in fear of murder. They will all have been shot, their stocks and their bodies left for carrion. After the revolution, the blanched skulls of realtors will mark the routes once taken by the demolished freeways, no pathway, more than three people wide. After the revolution, I will return to my lovers on distant planets. After the revolution, there will be no irony. I am Radis Norvegicus. I'm sitting in some shithole rat's nest and I'm a little angry. I wanted to be a talk show host, not a rat. You men think you have it bad with women? Well, I've got it a lot worse, let me tell you. What am I going to say to some nice-looking girl who I want to meet? I can tread water for over 36 hours. I can chew through lead pipes and cinder blocks. I can run on telephone wires. And what if I do get the girl home? Can't fit her through the door. It's too small. Yeah, I got a lot of gripes. How would you like to have a tail the length of your body to drag around all the time? Not my idea of fun by a long shot. And do you see the neighborhoods that I'm forced to live in? Those people live like pigs. Can't catch the subway, they haven't built it yet. Can't catch the uptown bus, I can't reach the step up. Hey, taxi! And everyone wants to kill me, feed me drugs and poison, put electrodes in my head, make me run on treadmills, dissect, bisect, and infect me, bind, blind, maim, and tame me. 
Are you folks crazy? You never invite me to your parties as if I would really want to go anyhow. Have you ever asked me to go to a movie? How about bowling? Have you ever seen a rat cry? I got tears, and I have a heart, and I've got brains, and if you could just see past the fur, I think that you would see that I'm a lot like you. It's 3.29 a.m. I look out my window at the hot, crowded street above. I notice I feel cold and alone, used up like an old bottle. No deposit, no return. Tough Muffin in Malibu. What's the, big, what's the biggest problem that you're noticing in the area? Burpees! Okay. I know two people in Malibu who have it, that's all. Well, I mean, I don't go around checking people's genitals, but at this time there is an epidemic of herpes. We all know it. A few years ago, in fact, a few months ago, we had never heard of it. We thought it was something little kids got from eating dirt. Now we find out that it's something that big kids get from uh, eating each other. I personally am an expert at not getting herpes. That's my forte. I'm an expert herpes not getter. Tough Muffin, how do you not get herpes? Well, first of all, as heretofore mentioned, one of the facts about herpes is that it can be contacted from a wet, warm, moist substance, like a wet towel. So the main thing is whenever you find a wet towel, don't wipe it on your genitals, don't kiss it. Another way to not get herpes, especially being a girl, which I am, being a girl especially, that is, if one of your girlfriends wants to borrow your lipstick, flatly refuse. But, you know, maybe let her use a little bit. But if one of your girlfriends who has a, one of those crazy sores on her lips borrows your lipstick unauthorized, give her the lipstick. Beings that I, as mentioned, am an expert in not getting herpes, first of all, you go into a public bathroom only when it's a necessity, and you do not touch anything in the public bathroom but yourself and paper towels. That's all you touch. You don't touch the handles, you use your feet. Of course, you do the old toilet flush with your feet. I mean, they have those, you know, those tissues, you know, those Polish tablecloths. Use those. If they don't have those, complain to management. If they, I mean, go outside, it's safer. Oh yes, and for you people who have herpes, I don't want you to be worried about, oh gosh, you know, meeting new guys and new girls. You're afraid to get intimate with them because, you know, you have to tell them that you have herpes or they could get it and, you know, the babies could be born blind. So they have now put together a place especially for people who have herpes. It's a new exclusive club. It's in Hollywood and I believe it's called Herpes R Us. Or is it called Herpes Only? I'm not real, or dismembered only, or something. <clears throat> of course, I have nothing against people who have herpes. I can honestly say some of my best friends have herpes, and I think everybody should have one. <laughs> but I did hear, you know, all this stuff about herpes. Don't worry about it, forget it. If you've got it, don't worry about it, it's no big deal. The government is really working on it day and night, around the clock. They are working on a cure for herpes. In fact, I hear right now, in test conditions, they have a vaccine that is 95% effective against herpes. No big deal, you won't have herpes, there's one side effect. You get the shot, you lose the herpes, but you contact polio. It's sad, but no, you know, what What can I say? No big deal. Uh, I asked a few friends how they kept from getting herpes, and my dear friend Andy Chopini, the famous GQ lifeguard in Malibu, said that he uses the Truth and Sex Act. That is, that you tell the girl that if she lies to you and says she doesn't have herpes and she does, that after you have sex and you get it, you'll kill her. I mean, he says it works really good every time. It isn't very romantic, is it? 
Every night I want to go insane. I put on my boots and my chains. We're going to know who's tough and who's lame. The world's going to know our name. DSY! 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 One, two, three, four! Mindless destruction! No rules from me! Mindless destruction! No rules for you! I held on to the crumbs of a half-smoked joint tightly while clutching my hands behind my back. He tapped me on the shoulder and said, What have you got? I felt so poorly that I could only type in lowercase. She was allergic to bullshit and she could feel her eyes watering. Her eyes were turning yellow and her skin was crawling at the sight of his name on a plain white envelope. Her lips stung as she tried to speak. But what did it all mean? She wouldn't call it love. His skin was too pale. Her only hope was eternal salvation. She had nothing to fear. The idea had a lukewarm reception. She danced into the living room. How did I know? Okay, this is cool. Ladybird, it's for Sam. Just being with you and holding you in my arms, just feeling your presence with every word you say. Looking at you, we can talk with our eyes, lying next to you at the end of the day. We can be content for the rest of our lives. Some of the pain can be taken away. We can forget the world outside. We can be content for the rest of our lives. If we scrape up the money, we can go out at night, watch Phil or Tito sing in the whiskey spotlight. We can walk to the frolic room, feed quarters to the jukebox. You'll be with Jack Daniels, I'll nurse Tanqueray on the rocks. Or we can stay home and listen to Sibelius, the Duke and Dizzy and all that jazz, dance to the souls or tones, or see what show the TV has. Just being with you and holding you in my arms, just feeling your presence with every word you say. Looking at you, we can talk with our eyes, lying next to you at the end of the day. We can be content for the rest of our lives. Following the first subject, enthusiasm, the second principle in the Betcher successful selling version of Ben Franklin's plan is order, self-organization. I don't know of any subject that's more important to a successful salesman. Without order, which means keeping careful records of all your activities, every prospect you contact, every sale you make, every referral you receive, you can't possibly know whether you're making money or losing it. The first year I sold life insurance, the same principle will apply to selling any other product or service, my records proved invaluable. At the end of that year, the calls I had made totaled 1,849. Out of these calls, I had interviewed 828 people, closed 65 sales, genius of and my commissions amounted said, to $4,251.82 until he stops asking Each questions. call was worth well, $2.36. I became it. a fool. One year After previously, I, I had been fired. Questions because now, I every listening. call I made, regardless First, of whether I saw was, the man or not, to talk. put $2.36 down in my public pocket. speaking course, I never could I find words that I to express the courage and faith in these records at talking that I've the records all about also showed that 70% of one day one of my best were made on the first interview kindly told me about this unpardonable fault of mine and 7% on the third to another well called ear pounder but listen to this assured me was 50% of my time was spent going after the 7% out of my way to avoid my immediate reaction to that was 
Why you bother didn't have to with give me any other examples? Why I not put all of my right time away. on the first and From second interviews? On, I began to with make this decision alone. I increased the value of shut. each of my calls. I discovered from two dollars thirty cents to four dollars twenty seven cents. Realization made me think about Without all the records, sales I had I would probably have had no lost way of discovering the these facts and the time I'd wasted. Another valuable lesson I learned through my records was the realization that I was probably the worst self-organizer in the world. I had I concentrated on 2,000 calls for the year at the rate the of 40 talk. per week. Almost immediately, before I knew it, I was so hopelessly behind that schedule. For example, I was ashamed to put down any ray on the quiet side. I kept making I new resolutions, but they never lasted very long. For being hard I just couldn't get organized. His Finally, I got lost. it through my head His firm that I must take more time for planning containers for the chemical It was industry. easy to throw 40 or 50 I had prospect been referred cards to Mr. together Ross and think one of his prepared. prepared. That, that didn't take any difference time. to him. But to go back over my records, plan uh, okay. exactly what I would say morning, to each prospect. Prepare Your secretary said you write letters, letters so I thought and then make out a schedule from Monday through Friday and their proper orders required four or five solid hours of the most intensive kind of work. Is, is that all Walker's the only to solution was to set aside each Saturday morning You're and call it Self-Organization yes, Day. Well. Did it work? It made all the difference in the world. I no longer had to drive myself to make calls. I walked in to see men with confidence and enthusiasm. It's surprising how much you can get done when you take time enough to plan it and how little you accomplish without a plan. If you're one of the kind who says, Oh, that wouldn't work with me. I can't live on a schedule. I wouldn't be happy. Well, whether you know it or not, you're already living on a schedule. And if it's not planned, it's probably a poor one. Let me give you an example. Not long ago, a friend of mine came to me for advice. He was badly discouraged in his sales job. Mr. Betcher, tell me something frankly. Do you think I'm cut out to be a salesman? If you put it that way, Charlie, no. I don't think... spot without a groan. This hideous murder accomplished, I set myself forthwith and with entire deliberation to the task of concealing the body. I knew that I could not remove it from the house, either by day or by night, without the risk of being observed by the neighbors. Many projects entered my mind. At one period, I thought of cutting and nearly throwing me headlong exasperated me to madness, uplifting an axe and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand, I aimed a blow at the animal, which of course would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished. But this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife, goaded by the interference into a rage more than demoniacal. I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain. She fell dead upon the spot without a groan. This hideous murder accomplished, I set myself forthwith and with entire deliberation to the task of concealing the body. I knew that I could not remove it from the house, either by day or by night, without the risk of being observed by the neighbors. Many projects entered my mind. At one period, I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At another, I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again, I deliberated about casting it in the well in the yard and packing it in a box as if merchandise with the usual arrangements and so getting a porter to take it from the house. 
Finally, I hit upon what I considered a far better expedient than either of these. I determined to wall it up in the cellar, as the monks of the Middle Ages are recorded to have walled up their victims. For a purpose such as this, the cellar was well adapted. Its walls were loosely constructed and had lately been plastered throughout with a rough plaster in which the dampness of the atmosphere had prevented from hardening. Moreover, in one of the walls was a projection caused by a false chimney or fireplace that had been filled up and made to resemble the rest of the cellar. I made no doubt that I could readily displace the bricks at this point, insert the corpse, and wall the hole up as before, so that no eye could detect anything suspicious. And in this calculation, I was not deceived. By means of a crowbar, I easily dislodged the bricks, and having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall, I propped it in that position. While with a little trouble, I relayed the whole structure as it originally stood. Having procured mortar, sand, and hair, with every possible precaution, I prepared a plaster which could not be distinguished from the old, and with this I very carefully went over the new brickwork. When I'd finished, I felt satisfied that all was right. The wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed. The rubbish on the floor was picked up with the minutest care. I looked around triumphantly and said to myself, Here at least, then, my labor has not been in vain. My next step was to look for the beast which had been the cause of so much wretchedness, for I had at length firmly resolved to put it to death. Had I been able to meet with it at the moment, there could have been no doubt of its fate, but it appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed at the violence of my previous anger and forbore to present itself in my present mood. It is impossible to describe or to imagine the deep and blissful sense of relief which the absence of the detested creature occasioned in my bosom. It did not make its appearance during the night, and thus for one night at least, since its introduction into the house, I soundly and tranquilly slept. I slept, even with the burden of murder upon my soul. The second and third day passed, and still my tormentor came not. Once again I breathed as a free man, the monster in terror had fled the premises forever. I should behold it no more. My happiness was supreme. The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little. Some few inquiries had been made, but these had been readily answered. Even a search had been instituted, but of course nothing was to be discovered. I looked upon my future felicity as secured. Upon the fourth day of the assassination, a party of the police came very unexpectedly into the house and proceeded again to make rigorous investigation of the premises. Secure, however, in the inscrutability of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment whatever. The officers bade me accompany them in their search. They left no nook or corner unexplored. At length, for the third or fourth time, they descended into the cellar. I quivered, not a muscle. My heart beat calmly, 
as that of one who slumbers in innocence. I walked the cellar from end to end. I folded my arms upon my bosom and roamed easily to and fro. The police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to depart. The glee at my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to say if but one word by way of triumph and to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltlessness. A gentleman, I said at last, as the party ascended the steps, I delight to have allayed your suspicions. I wish you all health and a little more courtesy. Uh, by the by, gentlemen, this, um, this is a very well-constructed house. In the rabid desire to say something easily, I scarcely knew what I uttered at all. I may say, an excellently well-constructed house. These walls, are you going, gentlemen? These walls are solidly put together. And here, through the mere frenzy of bravado, I rapped heavily with a cane which I held in my hand upon that very portion of the brickwork behind which stood the corpse of the wife of my bosom. But may God shield and deliver me from the fangs of the arch-fiend! No sooner had the reverberation of my blows sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb, by a cry, at first muffled and broken, like the sobbing of a child, and then quickly swelling into one long, loud, and continuous scream, utterly anomalous and inhuman, a howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen only out of hell, conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony, and of the demons that exult in their damnation. My own thoughts. It is folly to speak. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant, the party on the stairs remained motionless through extremity of terror and awe. In the next, a dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall. It fell bodily. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire, sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb. You listen to Flat Black Plastic on Mutiny Radio FM. Thank you very much if you bothered to applaud for me. No, it's too late now. I've already called you a bunch of jive mothers. <laughs> Mother has lost its significance somehow. Last Mother's Day, a guy gave his wife a skunk, a live skunk. She said, man, what the hell I'm gonna do with a skunk? <laughs> he said, grow your coat, I don't give a damn what you do with it. <laughs> I bring you stuff, I bring you candy and you want cookies. He said, it's a skunk, keep it. She said, well, where are we gonna keep a skunk? He said, she said, in the bedroom. She said, well, what about that smell? He said, hell, let him get used to it the way I did. <laughs> Thank you, I'm glad you like animal stories. <laughs> See, uh, 
People have been lied through through the years. Now you take General Custer. Idiot. Now why would a guy stand up and wave a sword with 5,000 Indians painted, drunk and screaming, riding toward him? You don't stand up. You kneel down behind one of them dead horses and peep. I got that much sense. I had me enough sense if I'd been there, I'd have cut one of them horses open and crawled in. And I'd have breathed through which either end I was laying at. You just don't take a man's buffalo away and think he's gonna forget it. My buffalo was man's first love of the prairie. Then sheep took over. It eliminated tiptoeing. Oh, give me a home where the short buffalo roam. Well, that's the truth. You have to be honest with your own self because you lay down some time and think. And that's too much for you. <coughs> People are in debt worry. Am I right? They worry. And let me ease your worried mind. Stop worrying about debt. Buy something on credit, sign your name. Don't live in those empty rooms waiting for that big break to come. When you have enough money to go pay for it, sign your name, they deliver whatever you like. They deliver it to your place wrapped in blankets, big new truck, you know what I mean? They put it in your home when places where you want it. And then when you don't pay, they pick that stuff back up. <laughs> and carried back to the store wrapped in them blankets in that big truck. But so far, you ain't spent nothing. <laughs> at least, no, really, at least order that stuff. There's a lot of things more important than money, and one of them is, uh, one of them is, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, give me a chance. No, it ain't that, because if you get some money, you can buy some of that. <laughs> Say, have you heard of the new breakfast food called Quirios? No, Quirios. They don't even sell them. They just eat each other. <laughs> Thank you, dear. That's it. I see a lot of couples holding hands now. Yeah, you're ready to leave here, aren't you? <laughs> There's a guy who was taking, you know, he went in the bar one night, and he got half crocked. In fact, he was towed out. A lot of people said tow up, but that's a different expression. He was towed out off booze. He was in this bar, and he had to go to the men's room, so he said, asked the bartender, he said, which way the men's room get closest? Right away, he said, no, that's okay, I'll go on home. The bartender didn't want to lose his last two customers, so he told the guy, he said, look, don't go home, go ahead and use our, our room there. He said, well, I've been taking salts. 
Bartender said, well, what the hell difference that make if you've been taking salt? He said, go ahead and use the restroom. Come on back out and drink some liquor. So the guy went inside. He came back about 15 minutes. Come back out all, looked like 10 or 15 people had been whipping on him. He was sitting there, his hair was all messed over his head, and his glasses were twisted across his face. His clothes were disheveled, evil, messed up. Bartender said, well, what the hell went on with this guy? He went in the toilet there by himself, and, and he looked in there, man, and stuff was everywhere, all over the wall and the ceiling, on the light bulbs, up on the shaving kit, on the floor, up under the hydrant. He came back out and said, man, what kind of salt you been taking? This guy said, summer salt. <laughs> some strippers in Hollywood two months ago. One girl came out and hit some water that I had spilled on the floor where I was mixing my drink. And she hit this water when she was going into her split. And she hit that floor so hard, the people backstage shuddered when they heard the sound of her hitting this floor. Wow! Took us 45 minutes to break the suction. <laughs> You should have heard the round of applause that girl got when she said. <laughs> Say, uh, what's the difference between a light sleeper and a hard sleeper? A light sleeper sleeps with the light on and a hard sleeper sleep through anything. <laughs> Takes this crowd quite a while to get them. Could you take your coat off, dear? Hey, relax. She's pretty. There's some pretty girls in San Francisco and some ugly ones. I met one over on post today. Look like crime in the face. <laughs> and try to get fresh with me. I said, no, no, darling, I'm not that type of guy. I said, besides, you couldn't love me the way I want you to anyway. She said, how is that? I said, on credit. <laughs> no, wouldn't nobody give nobody ugly. She was no cash money. I do her like Jesse James and them used to do them. Give us some canned goods and a 10-pound sack of flour. You'd be surprised what flour used to buy. I was up to a place one night, and I was just laying there. And a knock came on the door. Boom, boom. I said, hey, hey, I said, who's that, baby? She said, it must be my husband. I said, husband, you didn't tell me you had nobody. She said, hide. I said, well, where the hell you gonna hide in one room? She said, please hide. He's six foot four, weighs 298 pounds. I hid. I was a disc jockey when I was 19. I was lucky. I found a job, like, you know, when I should have been uh, still learning about it. And, uh, it inspired wonderful wino and Willie West, a character of mine. Radio stations, of course, change personnel rather rapidly. Willie West is no longer at wonderful wino. He's been replaced by Scott Lame. 
Hi gang, Scott Lame here, the boss jock with the boss sounds from the boss list of the boss 30 that my boss told me to play. <laughs> right here on the Nifty 850. <laughs> Wonderful Wino Radio. Wonderful Wino. The big sound in the big town. Why no time? Bing bong. Five minutes past the big hour at five o'clock. Hey, we'll get started one of the big sounds this week. Number five. Number five, number five, number five, number five, number five. Last week was number nine. Number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine. Moved up four spaces. Four spaces, four spaces, four spaces, four spaces, four spaces. Here it is, one of the new super groups. Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Sacco, and Vanzetti. <laughs> And the ever-present footprints cross the shadows on the carpets of the hallways of the memories of your mind. Okay, kids, one of the big sounds and a great story behind that one. And you heard it first right here on Wonderful Wino. Wonderful Wino. Wino time. Bing bong. Five minutes past the big hour of five o'clock. Moving along with two in a row. A big double play. Back-to-back -back sounds for you on the Scott Lane get-together on a wonderful Wednesday. Here's a tune that's really moving fast. When I say fast, it was recorded at nine o'clock this morning. <laughs> At 12 noon, it was number 15. At 3 o'clock, was the number one sound in town. And now it's a golden oldie. <laughs> Solid gold to make you feel old. Solid gold to make you feel old. A golden flashback from the summer of 69, before you were born. Remember, kids? <laughs> Here they are, the red, white, and blue electric outdoor Protestant blues band. Jenny. We. Jenny. Okay. Okay, it's always good to get into some super gold. Super gold. Okay, we'll take about five minutes out here for the latest news from around the world from the award-winning Wino Newsroom. We've, uh, we've run special wires to the artillery line and adjacent villages to give you direct reports in the zone of the advancing enemy. First, we take you to the battery of the 22nd Field Artillery, located in the Watching Mountains. Range 32 meters. 32 meters. Projection 39 degrees. 39 degrees. Fire! And 40 yards to the right, sir. Shift range, 31 meters. 31 meters. Projection, 37 degrees. 37 degrees. Fire! It's a... Got the tripod of one of them. They've stopped. The others are trying to repair it. Quick, get the range. Shift, 50, 30 meters. 30 meters. Projection, 27 degrees. 27 degrees. Fire. Can't see the shell answer. Letting off a smoke. What is it? Black smoke, sir. Moving this way. Flying close to the ground. 
It's moving fast. Put on gas masks. Get ready to file. Shift to 24 meters. 24 meters. Projection 24 degrees. 24 degrees. Fire! Still can't see, sir. Smoke's coming nearer. Get the range! Twenty three meters. Twenty three meters. Twenty three meters. Army bombing plane V-843 off Bayonne, New Jersey. Lieutenant Bolt, commanding eight bombers, reporting to Commander Fairfax Langham Field. This is Bolt reporting to Commander Fairfax Langham Field. Enemy the Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal. The redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body, and especially upon the face of the victim, were the pest ban, which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men. And the whole seizure, progress, and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress nor egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisatori, there were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there was beauty, there was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the Red Death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first let me tell you of the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here the case was very different. 
as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bizarre. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every 20 or 30 yards, and at each turn a novel effect to the right and the left. In the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or depended from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood opposite to each window a heavy tripod bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illuminated the room. And thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. And in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang. And when the minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that at each lapse of an hour the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound. And thus the waltzers perforce ceased their evolutions and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company. And while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows, as if in confused reverie or meditation. But when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled as if at their own nervousness and folly and made whispering vows each to the other that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. 
And then after the lapse of 60 minutes, which embraced 3,600 seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock. And then there were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colors and effects. He disregarded the decorum of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed in great part the movable embellishments of the Seven Chambers upon occasion of this great fate. And it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm, much of what has been since seen in Hanani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies, such as the madman fashions. There were much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams. And these, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as an echo to their steps. And anon, there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of velvet. And then for a moment all is still, and all is silent, save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away, they have endured but an instant, and a light half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells and the dreams live and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many-tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes and the blackness of the sable drapery of Paul's. And to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life. And the rebel went whirlingly on until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock. And then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzes were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock. And thus it happened, perhaps, that more of thought crept with more of time into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus, too, it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. 
and the rumor of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz or murmur expressive of disapprobation and surprise, then finally of terror, of horror, and of disgust. You're listening to Flat Black Plastic on the Mutiny Radio.fm. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had out-Heroded Herod and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion, even with the utterly lost to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole 